mercy is more. And all God's people said, amen. That's the truth. Let's pray. Father, thanks for today. Um, we truly love you. And uh, God, I pray that no matter where each one is at this morning in terms of their walk with you, um, whether they are still trying to seek out and figure out and um, not really sure about your mercy or whether they've been standing in it for 30, 40 years. I pray that this morning from your word that you would just, even as Matt prayed at the opening, Lord, just baptize us afresh and anew with an understanding of your mercy and your grace. Um, We need you so much. And your mercies truly are new every morning. Your word says it, and it is true. And I pray that we would each be able to leave here today saying yes and amen to that. That we've seen again with fresh eyes just how gracious you are. That we would live in light of that. That your grace would and mercy would exude from us because we've been rooted in it. Thank you for everyone that's here this morning. Would you please just fill us with your spirit and minister to our hearts. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Good to see you. Good to be with you on the west side. Um, Got your Bibles. Grab them. Go to Romans chapter 9. Today we will be finishing out this chapter, which is uh, probably one of the thorniest chapters in the Bible. And by thorny, I, I mean... Um, There are some things in it that can be a little bit tricky to understand, but even more than that, things that are just hard to swallow um, because of how direct they are. This morning we will be reading verses 25 through 33, so let me do that, and then we'll jump in. And there's a bunch of quotes here from the Old Testament, the first one here being from Hosea, but Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 25, the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as indeed... He says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said of them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And as Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom, and we would have become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Pray with me one more time. Father, please help us. Open the eyes of our heart that we could see wonderful things from your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Between my... I believe it was between my ninth and 10th grade year in high school. I did some work over the summer for a neighbor, an older retired gentleman who was fairly well off, and he, would, he was very gracious with me. I would mow his yard and pick up sticks and rake some leaves and clean out gutters, kind of like just whatever he told me to do, and he would pay me definitely more than I was worth. Um, but uh, he had another friend who um, uh, wanted some work done, another older, older gentleman, and this guy also seemed to be fairly well-to-do. This guy, I, I remember he was quite intriguing to me. Um, I, he wasn't from the community, but he lived in the community, and, and nobody really knew him that well as far as, as, far as I knew. But he, he would cruise around in this old vintage Rolls-Royce, um, kind of an old-school car, kind of like you would uh, uh, kind of picture the Queen of England cruising around in. At least that's what I, in my mind, that's what it was. And he had a a gate out by his driveway with these, like, lions on top of the 
the, the gate. Anyway, and um, he knew this other old guy that I was working for, and so I went and I did some work for him. And, uh, and he had me, I remember, I, I don't remember what we were even really doing, but I know I was digging post holes with a post hole digger, and I did a little bit of painting and some pressure washing um, and scraping some old paint and different things like that. And, and this guy, um, he would just, uh, he would criticize everything that I did. I would be digging the post hole, and I thought I was really working hard. I, at least in my mind, I remember myself doing the best I could and breaking a sweat. And he would just stand there and watch me, kind of like this, with this kind of scowl on his face. And he goes, why don't you put a little effort into it? And uh, I was like, okay. And I, you know, I, I tried harder, and then I remember scraping something else. And, uh, he did, and, you know, and he told me that I just wasn't doing that well. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember this, this offense kind of rising up in me, but... I wanted paid, so I didn't say so I didn't so I didn't say anything. And I'm glad I didn't say anything because um, I remember several of those days, one in particular, where after him criticizing my work all morning, went in and his sweet little wife made us some tuna sandwiches, and we sat down and ate. And I did not care for tuna sandwiches, but I choked it down as politely as I could. But they just began to, to share some of their story, and it really was a treasure. They, um, they grew up during the Great Depression down in Southwest, in the southwestern United States. Um, I remember him sharing uh, that at one season of their lives, uh, they, they went a stretch of 13 years. I remember this very specifically. They went 13 years without ever eating out one time. Now, I don't know if that's impressive to you, but I can't go three days without grabbing fast food or something. So 13 years without eating out. And I remember them just sharing some of the, some of the, the hardships that they went through. And, um, uh, and along the way, they did, I mean, they were, they were multimillionaires, but it was, they didn't hit the lottery. Um, they, had, they had worked and they had saved and they had been frugal, and there were just a lot of uh, kind of um, life principles and lessons and treasures, I guess, you could say, uh, as I got to know them a little bit better. And I share all that this morning, because in Romans 9 as a whole, especially, but even especially in the verses that I read this morning that we're going to look at and unpack, hidden beneath what seems to be at first a very offensive description of our sin, hidden beneath that is just priceless treasure. The depth of our Savior's love and the glorious reality of our new identity in Christ. And as we've gone through Romans 9, um, I think everyone who, who reads it says that there are initially some, some offensive things, but, but I just want to encourage us once again to press in past that because it's true, first of all, <laughs> what the Bible says about our sin, but secondly, there's treasure here that will absolutely change our lives. And so I just want to kind of work through this morning in, in what we have left here in Romans chapter 9, um, what are really just kind of a series of pictures uh, describing the nature of our sin and God's demeanor towards us um, in his justice and in his wrath against that sin, and yet also his, his mercy and his grace. Now, in the context of Romans 9, uh, as we've talked about often as we've gone through that, as we've gone through this, no matter who's been communicating out here, Mark did a wonderful job last week with the section right before this. But the issue on the table in Romans 9 is, has the word of God failed? And that's a very important question. Because what Paul laid out in Romans 1 through 8 in the gospel are just the glorious realities of the good news of the gospel and all that Christ has done for us. But um, if we're a thinking, discerning people, one of the major um, questions on the table would be to us, yeah, but what about the nation of Israel? Because they were, quote-unquote, God's chosen people. Hasn't God's word failed to them? And Paul answers that in Romans chapter 9, you remember, in verse 6, and he says, no, not all who the word of God has not failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And what he's been pressing through this whole thing is that the reason God's word has not failed, is not failing, and will never fail 
is, be, is because of his sovereign electing purpose, that his mercy is always on the move, it's going out, and he is laying hold of people's hearts by grace and preserving for himself a people um, that will make it to, end, to the end and that have received grace. And so what we have here, in the, in, starting in verse 25 and, and the section that we're in today, is really Paul just giving um, uh, more affirmation around that, specifically regarding several Old Testament stories and Old Testament scriptures and quotes that are um, kind of continuing to put a cap on this argument that God's word has not failed and that it has always depended upon God's sovereign grace and mercy to save people who are in rebellion against him. And so here is the first Old Testament story that he brings to mind, and as we press into it, maybe you weren't offended by it when we read it, but trust me, you will be, um, as we press into it, and it's the Old Testament story of Hosea, the prophet Hosea. And he shares two, two quotes here from Hosea, from Hosea 2.23 and also from Hosea 1.1. He says, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now let me explain the context of the book of Hosea if you're not familiar with it. Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. The nation of Israel is split at this time into the northern and southern kingdom, the southern um, kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the ten tribes. He is the last of the prophets to that northern kingdom before God is going to send the Assyrians to come in and to wipe them out, or, or to take them captive, I should say, um, <coughs> because of their rebellion against him. And God's word to Hosea, his direct command to this prophet, is to go and to marry a prostitute. And he tells Hosea, I want you to go and I want you to marry a prostitute for this express purpose. Here's why. He says, because I need a picture. I need a picture of what the nation of Israel's sin is like before me. And so he tells Hosea to go do this. Hosea obediently does it. The book of Hosea gets off to a roaring start. If I can just read one verse from it here in Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord first spoke to Hosea, and the Lord said to Hosea, and get ready for the offense. He says, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. I told you you'd be offended. But this is God, Almighty God. This is his picture of sinful man before him. And if I can, he's not speaking here about the Amalekites or the Amorites. These are his chosen people who have forsaken him and his ways. And the, the quote here that, are in, that Paul quotes in verse 25 from Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10 is referring to, when it says, my people and not beloved, those were the names of their children. Is that they have kids, the first, the first child is a son and his name literally means scattered because the Lord was going to scatter them. And then they have two other children. The first one is a daughter named Loruhamah, which means no mercy. And the, next, the third child is a son named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. And again, God tells him to name them this because he wants a picture of what their sin is like before his holiness and in their rebellion. And this is what Paul quotes here, and he's referring specifically in the context to the Gentiles. So the way that this works is, with the nation of Israel being called by God here at this point in their history, not my people and no mercy, literally what, what, their, what their names mean. Paul here is, is applying it to the Gentiles, and Gentiles are just simply anyone who is not Jewish. Okay, And so in having them put off by God, okay, and God later on in the book is going to promise to also bring them back in. So there's a word of judgment, but also a word of mercy, and we'll get to that here in just in just a second. 
but Paul applies it to the Gentiles. So go back to verse 24 in chapter 9. This is where we would have ended last week. And again, through this whole section, Paul is speaking of God's calling of a people to himself. And in verse 24, you see this word called again. It's the same word that was used in like Romans 8, 28, 28 through 30, when he speaks of all those he's called, he's also justified and that we've been called according to his purpose. Back earlier in chapter 9, when, in verse 11, when he says, not because of works, but because of him who calls. And then here in verse 24, he says, even us whom he has called, and look carefully, not only from the Jews, so there's a remnant chosen out, called from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So from the Jews and from the Gentiles. And now this first um, Old Testament passage that he brings to mind and, and calls and quotes is from Hosea. And he's applying this idea of them being broken off in a sense and not his people and not receiving mercy. He's saying that the, if, if, this, if he said this of God's chosen people, it's also true for people who were truly not his people, i.e. the Gentiles. And so even in God's judgment, there is mercy because he's also holding out his hand to these people who, though they were not my people, he says, they will be my people. And though they had not received mercy, they will receive, they will receive mercy. And I think that even though Paul just quotes two little sections of the book of Hosea, he's, he wants us to remember the entire story. And the book of Hosea, again, very... Um, very poignant, I guess you would say would be a, a, a polite way to put it. But in Hosea chapter 3, the saga of Hosea and his wife Gomer, which, yeah, not just that she was a prostitute, but her name was Gomer. But anyway, um, she has once again returned to her old way of life. And in Hosea chapter 3, the Lord tells him again to go get her. And so in Hosea chapter 3, it says, The Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord, Yahweh, loves the children of Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes, which is a weird sentence just on the surface you're like what's with the what's with the raisin cakes the raisin cakes were they were a delicacy that was also used in temple worship of um immoral idols back in that day that's what that reference is to just in case you were wondering and then apparently what happened was that gomer had once again given herself to other lovers even after being married to hosea and those other lovers had in turn given her over once again to slavery. And she literally finds herself on the auction block as a slave. And in Hosea 3.2, it says, so Hosea writes, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And so if you can imagine the prophet Hosea having to literally go down to the auction block, which again, all a picture of sin and wickedness and that this was even happening, but here's his wife who had once again given herself over to this old lifestyle and to other lovers, and he buys her back. And again, what I said was at the beginning that if you can get past what seems to the natural man to be an initial offense about the description of our sin, but please hear me, the description is accurate. And it's a description that God gives. There is amazing treasure regarding God's mercy and his grace in our lives. And the picture here should be a pretty obvious one is that we're not bought back by Hosea for 15 shekels and some barley. But Jesus Christ, brother, sister, if you are in Christ this morning, he came looking for you. 
And he bought you back, not with a few shekels and some barley, but with his precious blood, with his very life. But make no mistake, this is the way the Bible speaks of your conversion. That you weren't wandering around and, and just happened upon him. But that you had turned away from him, had once again given yourself over to other lovers who in turn had given you over back into slavery. And he came looking for you. And he came looking for me. And this is the way the Bible speaks about our sin and the offensiveness of our sin before an almighty, holy God. And it's the way he speaks about his mercy. That his mercy is not static. It's not just sitting over there somewhere. And if we just, if we just happen to stumble upon it, we find it. No, his mercy's on the move. His mercy comes for us. His mercy finds us. And again, in order to to be able to receive, to rejoice in, to delight in, and to be able to worship at the reality of that, you also have to accept the offense that you and I were just as bad as Gomer. But that's the way it works. You can't have one without the other. You can't have the mercy. You can't have the grace. You can't have the freedom of being bought with the precious blood of Christ as we just sang about if you also don't want the offense of being known as a Gomer. But oh, how precious, how precious this is. He comes and he pursues us. I remember my senior year of high school, looking back on it now, I kind of knew it then. I'd grown up in the church, but I wasn't following Jesus the way that I knew that I was supposed to. Um, was not living a life that I was that I'm proud of at all, but my entire senior year of high school, I just can't. God was pursuing me. He was hot on my trail. Wasn't because I was asking for it, wasn't because I deserved it, I was doing the exact opposite. I was trying to run away from him, but he did not give up. And if you're in Christ this morning, I don't know, you know, it might not have been your senior year of high school. I hope, I hope it was earlier. Maybe it was later. I don't know. All of our stories is different. It, it's when God is pleased to reveal his son in us is the way that the Apostle Paul speaks about it in, in, in the book of Galatians. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not sure that you've been bought with the precious blood of Christ, but you're here this morning. And I pray that you would see that he's pursuing you right now. That he loves you. His mercy goes looking for us. And again, in the context, Paul applies this kind of specifically to the Gentiles, but it applies to everyone because it was originally written to the Jewish people. And there's none righteous, no, not one. Um, And it's all of our story. And then he, he transitions here from quoting from the book of Hosea. And he moves into kind of another offensive, offensive picture. And he applies this specifically to the Jews. So again, remember, verse 24, he says not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. He quotes from the book of Hosea, applies it pr- pretty specifically in the context to the Gentiles, but now gives some other verses regarding the Jews, but again, would be ap- applicable to all of us. Verse 27, he says, As the, And at Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea. That's a quote. Uh, This is a quote from Isaiah chapter 10. Only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth without delay. So the prophet Isaiah um, was sent very uh, shortly after um, Hosea the prophet, after they were being carried off uh, into Assyria. Isaiah the prophet is kind of in the midst of that um, uh, deportation uh, into Assyria, and, and he's also prophesying at this time. <coughs> and he brings this word of judgment to them. And then he quotes another passage from the book of Isaiah, and this is in the first chapter. This is from Isaiah 1.9. This is verse 29 in, the, in chapter 9 of Romans here. He says, and as, I, and as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, now get this, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom, and become like Gomorrah. Now this is insanely, again, offensive language. 
Um, he is saying to his chosen people, once again, he's not talking to the Philistines. He's not talking to the Moabites. He's speaking to his chosen people. And he says, if God had not actively like, left us offspring or descendants, the chosen people of God left to themselves would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. This is where they were headed. See, one of the things that comes up, and up over and over and over again in the whole argument of Romans 9 is this, is this pretend picture of a people who are neutral and when it talks about God's calling and about his mercy and about his you know, uh, choosing some and having mercy on who he wants to have mercy, we immediately go, oh, so you're saying there's somebody that's just going, choose me, choose me, and God's going, no. No, 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 that, that, that's never the case. The whole lot of humanity, including God's chosen people, if left to themselves, would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Two cities in the Old Testament that are famous because God literally rained down fire from heaven upon them in righteous judgment. And the prophet Isaiah there and the apostle Paul here, quoting from the book of Isaiah, applies it to God's people. And again, I think, uh, I don't want to stretch the text here in any way, but I think that, that Paul, in, in using this language from Isaiah and Hosea, he, he wants us to remember these stories. And do you remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? How even in the midst of that judgment and the horror of their sin that had, again, the Bible describes it as having risen, it's like this stench that rose all the way to heaven before God's holiness. You remember the story about how before he does that, Abraham is kind of viewed as this intercessor, in a sense, for his nephew Lot, who's, who's in the city at the time. And he, he'd started off in the valley near there, and then he moves into the city, and by the time the angels come to get him out, as we'll read here in just a second, he's sitting at the city gates, which is what sin does in our life. It's the way it works. Again, it never remains static. We're always going to either be moving away from it, putting it to death, or it's going to be drawing us in getting us to sit at its gates. And that's where, where they find Lot. And if I can just read briefly here with the story that I'm sure many of us are familiar with in Genesis chapter 19. Um, it says that these, these angels of the Lord uh, come to him. And in verse 14 it says, So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. And isn't that the way it is? Anytime you talk about God's judgment, and to be quite honest with you, even in the church, among God's people who say that we believe this book, you begin to speak of judgment, and people go, yeah, well, yeah. That was the Old Testament God, right? I mean, he's not... I mean, Brothers and sisters, please be careful that you've not created a God in your own image. Um, but it's, they seem to him to be jesting. Anyway, verse 15. It says, As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest they be swept away in the punishment of this city. And it says this, But he, being Lot, he lingered. Oh, how sin gets us to do that. But he lingered. So the men, these angels, seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand and then listen to this little, this brief little interrupter commentary of Genesis chapter 19, verse 16. It says, the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set them in and set them outside the city. Did you catch that? He's lingering. He doesn't want to go. Yeah, he knows that it's serious. He's not as bad as the sons-in-law. They're like, ah, oh, he's just kidding around. He, I don't know, you know, crazy lot. What's gotten into him? But he's lingering. He can't go. He can't let go of his sin. They grab him by the hand and pull him out of the city. 
even against his will in some regard. And the Bible describes it as, this is the Lord, Yahweh, being merciful to them. If I can, let me, maybe I haven't offended you enough this morning, so let me try again. Um, but one of the things, I'll, I'll, if I can just shoot real straight with you, okay? One of the things that I hear all the time, all the time, is that like, God would never override your will. God would never go against what you want. Yes, he would. And if I can say this, praise God that he does. Eric Miller, the natural man, had nothing in Eric Miller that desired the things of God. Eric Miller, the natural man, was resistant to the things of God. I was running from him, but his mercy came after me. And if you know Jesus Christ, maybe it wasn't as distinct as like running away like the prodigal son or like Lot in the midst of Sodom. But on some level, there is nobody who is saved that is not saved apart from the sovereign mercy and grace of God. This is what Romans 9 is all about. And again, press past the offense and what you will find is an amazing display of the grace of God. That he pursues us not because of us, but despite us. You guys know the story. He brings them, he brings them out. And again, even in that picture, and again, I want to be clear here, this is not exactly the same remnant that Paul's referring to, but even here you see a picture of God's mercy in the midst of judgment and how he preserves a remnant. Even out of Sodom and Gomorrah, he saves a remnant of Lot and his family. And the prophet Isaiah is saying, if God had not sovereignly shown grace and mercy to his people, they would have become just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, <coughs> verse 30. In the context and flow of chapter, of chapter 9, um, this is kind of a, a bit of a turning point, and it's kind of a segue really into what we'll look at next week uh, in chapter 10. And kind of um, not only, well, and what we've, we've had so far in chapter 9 is a lot of God's sovereignty, and what you have moving into chapter 10 is much of man's responsibility. And those two things are held in tension throughout the Bible, throughout the scriptures, and also in chapters 9 and 10 of the book of Romans, is that you have God's sovereignty and then you have man's responsibility and our response to that sovereignty. And, and verse 30 begins to pave the way for this, but he, he, he kind of gives a conclusion. This is a little phrase that Paul has used throughout the book of Romans, and it's this little phrase, what shall we say then? And it kind of serves the same purpose as like a therefore. So in light of what we've just talked about, but it's not just what he's talking about in these immediate verses, but it's what he's been talking about all throughout chapter 9, I believe going back into chapter 8, and perhaps even the whole of the book up until this point. Like what shall we say then in response to these things? What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. And here comes another word picture that is kind of cool, yet also kind of offensive, and yet really awesome when you push through the offense of it. He says, the Gentiles who did not pursue, everybody say pursue. Pursue, okay, you guys are very responsive, good job, get a gold star. I do stuff like that at the theater, they're like, um, I'm just kidding. I hope the theater people don't listen to this. Anyway, um, <laughs> but uh, pursue, let me continue to read here. The righteousness, righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Verse 31. But that Israel who pursued, see it? Same word. Pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Now, this word pursue, it, it's a very specific word. Um, it can be used generally just in terms of going after, but it, it's the idea of running a race. It's, it's, it's a word picture that would bring to mind the idea of running a race, and Paul uses it, uses it twice. He uses it first in regards to the Gentiles, which is what he's been talking about here. Again, remember, context, flow of thought. Going back to verse 24, he's called a people from both Jews and the Gentiles. He quotes from Hosea not my people, applying it to the Gentiles. He quotes from Isaiah saying they'd have been, become like Sodom and Gomorrah, referring to the Jews, if God had not given them a remnant. Um, 
and he's saying that the Gentiles, here's this kind of, it's like a summary statement of what he's been, what he's been saying, is the Gentiles, who were not even running a race, have found themselves in the winner's circle. It's essentially, it's essentially it. Um, and again, I say, like, it's cool, but yet also kind of offensive, because you weren't even in the race, pal. <laughs> you were like, yeah, I made it. You, well, you careful. Remember, his grace is given so that none will boast. And the picture is here, you, you're like, I, I, run, I, I ran the race, I, I won. Well, not, not really. Gentiles who weren't even pursuing this righteousness have attained it. Why? Because it's righteousness that is by faith. And what is faith? Is faith something that we conjure up in and of ourselves? No, no. Faith is simply a true, sincere looking away from self and looking towards God. And the reason that I'll argue all day long is that technically even that faith is a gracious gift is because the very nature of our sin is that we don't look away from ourselves to God. The very nugget of our sin is that we look at ourselves and that we make it all about us. Right? And so, literally right now, okay, someone tried to share the Wi-Fi password with me on my, uh, on my iPad. Anyway, never mind. That was kind of funny. Okay. Um, sorry, it popped up. I was like, go, go away. Um, so, you've got this picture that he's going to tease out here through these remaining verses of the Gentiles not even pursuing or not even running a race, and yet they find themselves in the winner's circle. And then he says that Israel, they, they were running a race, but they got disqualified, essentially. Why? Because they ran the race wrongly. They ran the race according to their own self-righteousness, according to works, thinking that they could somehow run the race of and win of making themselves righteous before an almighty, holy God. And so, and then you get down to verse 33, and he quotes again from the book of Isaiah, and again, look, remember the imagery of pursuing, it's the idea of running a race, and, you know, when you run, you want to watch out that you don't stumble, right? And then in verse 33, he says, As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And again, it's speaking there of Christ and not just of Christ, but of the cross. Okay? And so what you essentially have Paul doing here in this last picture is, again, that the Gentiles weren't even running a race. They find themselves in the winner's circle. Israel was trying to run the race, but even though they were trying really hard, they're disqualified because, because of their self-righteousness. It really is a picture of the story of the prodigal son and the two sons is that the younger son basically tells the dad that he wishes he was dead, he just wants his stuff, and he leaves and goes off to a distant country. But you also have the older son who gets overlooked so often. And the older, and the older son or the elder brother, um, he stays in the father's house. And, and, here, and here's the deal of those two sons. One, the younger son is a picture of the Gentiles, the older son is a picture of Israel. And both sons sought to displace the authority of their father in their own lives. One of them, the younger son, the Gentiles, did it through open rebellion, okay, and basically telling the father he just wished he was dead and just wanted his stuff. But the other one, the older brother, sought to displace the father's authority in his life, not through open rebellion, but through self-righteous service thinking that he could somehow put the father in his debt. And his illogical conclusion um, was basically, the father owes me, if you, guys, if you guys remember that story. And again, Paul here, and I know I'm kind of mixing stories and using that as an illustration, but then with this quote from Isaiah about stumbling upon the stumbling stone, um, and the offense of the cross. And again, I think probably to, to our ears, the story of Hosea is a little bit more offensive. Maybe even the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is more offensive. But especially to a Jewish hearer, I want to tell you something. Nothing, nothing was more offensive 
than a savior, a messiah, a deliverer who would hang on a cross. Nothing. Because they knew the law. They knew what the Torah said. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, it says that cursed is any man who is hanged on a tree. And this man, Jesus, who hung on the cross, he is the stumbling stone. The stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. And they could not understand in their self-righteousness why in the world, not just why, but how, this man could possibly deliver them. And the reason they didn't understand how he could deliver them is because they did not understand that they themselves were cursed and that they themselves deserved that punishment that he was taking for them. Do you remember as Jesus was crucified? Two sinners on either side of him, two, two criminals, two thieves. And the one sinner on the one side, he knows that he deserves it. He, he, he says, like, our, our punishment is deserved, but this man has done nothing wrong. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He knows that he deserves it, but the Pharisees stood there mocking him. Ah, he saved others, let's see if he saves himself. Because they couldn't fathom that their Messiah, their deliverer, their liberator, that they looked for for years, would possibly hang on a cross for them. But that's exactly what he's doing. And they stood there and they mocked him uh, as he literally was taking the punishment that they deserve. And he, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And church, I just want to remind us that the message of the cross, it's absolutely foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. And I am telling you, we are never going to stop preaching it. And therefore, I believe people will always be getting saved, but I also believe that people will always be offended. You understand? People will always be offended. The Bible will straight up smack you upside the head. And it will do it unapologetically. All throughout, as we've seen, as we've seen this morning. Almost, <coughs> almost inevitably, again, just finishing out this thought here about running the race and Again, the Gentiles finding themselves in the winner's circle uh, despite not even being in the race and, and, and others missing it, the self-righteous missing it. Um, but almost inevitably with any modern-day sports team, uh, basketball is my favorite sport, so that's about the only one, the only championship series that I watch. But almost always anymore, whenever, you know, they've won game seven or, you know, clinched the series or whatever, and you have you know, the celebration and all the players out on the court, almost inevitably you have families that come out too, right? The, the wives, the children, and they're out there and sometimes, you know, they, they, they join in the celebration and sometimes they even get to like hold up the trophy, you know, get to, get to touch it for a second and they get in the, they get in the photos and they find themselves on the podium and and maybe even, you know, being asked a few questions here and there. About, oh, man, are you proud of your daddy or your mom or, you know, whoever's won the thing? You know, whatever, whatever the, sport, the sport may be. And I say that because, church, in, in Christ and all that Paul's talking about and even going back into chapter 8, um, when he says in verse 37 that in all these things we are more than conquerors, more than conquerors through him who loved us. Okay, let's... Let's never forget who actually won the prize, all right? It wasn't us. It was Jesus. 
and absolutely positively grace upon grace, we get invited into the winner's circle. <laughs> We're invited up onto the podium. We even get to hold the trophy. But brothers and sisters, let's not forget that we didn't do a thing. We didn't do a thing. It was all him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him, but to all who would just simply receive him. He gives the right to become children of God. Children born not of the will of the flesh or of the will of man or of blood, but born of God. Miracle upon miracle. Anthony, you come up. I'll begin. Just begin to close here. Um, First of all, and this might seem like a hard left, but I, I want to say this, and I've been wanting to say it throughout, and I just, again, we, we're in a lot of ways flying through Romans, the book of Romans as a whole, also Romans 9. There's so much more that could be said each and every week. But this morning, with all these different quotes from the Old Testament, and I believe in just in chapter 10 alone, it, depending how you count them, there are at least 10 quotes from the Old Testament scripture that Paul is referring to, okay? And I, and. Again, Romans 9 has talked about some heavy stuff, but I just want to say this and and remind us of this from just a pastoral perspective in us as Mercy Hill Church. And I've, I've, I've mentioned it briefly, but I kind of flew by it, and I want to say it again. Here it is, okay? Brother, sister, we do not get to make a God in our own image, okay? What the Scripture says about who he is is who he is. And you don't get to cut parts out of it that you don't like, You don't get to go, well, over here it says he's love. True, we can harmonize all these things. But we need to rightly handle the word of truth, right? We don't just turn a blind eye to the parts that we don't like. Our God is glorious in who he is by nature. He does not need to apologize for it, and we will not apologize for it, okay? So just remember that. Secondly, let me say, also, and I, and I hope, um, I don't know, you guys feel the same way, I guess. I just want to say that I am very, 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 very hopeful. You know why? Because what we've talked about in Romans 9, and again, and again this morning as we finished up this chapter, it's absolutely true, and God is still doing this. Do you know that? He's still going down to the auction block. And he's still buying back people from their sin. He's still grabbing people by the hand. And he's bringing them out from what certainly would be a place and a path of destruction. I I sat at a coffee shop this past week. And in the midst of people milling around and me and this other guy just sitting there, please hear me, because it was not me. But I saw before my very eyes God take a dead man and make him alive. He saved him right there. And I say all that because I, I know that, please hear me, I'm not saying that I or we as a, teaching team with Matt, the interns, and others have explained everything perfectly through Romans 9. And I know there still may be a lot of questions, and that's fine. This is what discipleship is all about. We're always learning and growing. I do just want to remind us that I believe every single day his mercy is on the move to save people and to rescue them from the path that they're on. And church, he calls us as his body, as his people, to join him in this. And we, I, we get to do that. Is that not amazing? We are saved by grace, and we get to serve him by grace. And it's not us. But what he calls each and every one of us to, please, because again, please hear me, it's not because I'm a pastor. 
I very, that, that, this past week when I was sitting at the coffee shop with this guy, I very clumsily explained to him the gospel. It was not a great presentation. And yet right before my very eyes, God saved him and made him alive. And I'm telling you, I'm very hopeful. (laughs) And I hope you are too. Because Jesus Christ is still on the throne. And he's never going to stop saving people. That's our hope. Let's pray. Father, thanks for just your goodness to us. Thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would always give each one of us hearts that doesn't stop or turn away when your word and your spirit say offensive things to us. Because you're saying it not because you're just mean or mad or cantankerous or grumpy, but you're saying it because it's true. And you want us to live in light of the truth. And Father, in order to get to where we want to be, we have to be honest about where we're at. And Lord, where every one of us was at at one point, if we know you now as Savior, was that we were lost. We were slaves and you came and set us free. So Lord, just I, I pray that you'd help us to live in light of your power and your authority and your grace. I pray that we go out from this place not just today, but tomorrow, the rest of the week, every day for the rest of our lives. Lord, please, Help us to live with hope, knowing that you are still on the move. That your mercy comes for us. And you grab us to bring us out into into salvation. Thank you for being so good. Thank you for your word today. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. You guys stand with me and we will sing.